Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, and I'll begin reading in verse 22 and read to the end of the chapter. We'll be focusing on the last two verses. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So last week we started in this passage and we didn't have time to go through all of it. Uh, the final two verses contain quite a bit and hopefully we'll be able to uncover some of that for you this morning. And one of the ways I tried to communicate this to you and give you a sense of what's happening in this passage and, and all that's available for you here is to show you that what God has done in Christ in appointing this new high priest for you and giving you entrance into this new covenant gives you a new identity. That it's not just these far out heavenly glorious things in the universe somewhere that he does and that we do our best to understand them and one day maybe we'll understand them fully in glory but they have real life implications now and today for who you are what you want your life to be about and what it is you're seeking and so I, I kind of phrased it as, as me trying to give you this gift and, and expose you really to the gift that God has given you, this new identity in Christ and new meaning in this new covenant. So what does this mean? What, what, what am I talking about? Let me unpack a little bit what I mean by this gift of a new identity. First, God determines who you are. Believer or not, resistant to the truth of the gospel or not, God determines who you are. And that is part of the offense of the gospel. That the Lord God has the right to say of you who you are, what your life ought to be about, and where it is you are going. So even if you believe in Him or not, if you appropriate His blessings or not, if you call yourself a Christian or not, God decides who you are. He tells you who you are. And more than that, if you're in Christ, your identity comes from your covenant with God that he has enacted in Christ. Here's an example. Um, I lived for uh, over two decades as a single individual, right? And many of my single years were spent 
on a college campus. It was Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, but even in the undergrad program there, you get a lot of opportunities to hang out late with your friends, okay? So we would stay in each other's dorm rooms and just debate theology usually, or we would go waste time at Denny's while we pretended to be doing group study, right? Nothing ever gets done in those. So we're out at 2, 3 a.m. I don't have to call anybody. I don't have to update anyone. I'm, I'm 19, I'm 20, I'm, I'm living on my own, I'm earning my own income. I don't, I'm not necessarily accountable. So, but the, when, once I get married, right, then I enter into covenant with my wife, Beth, then I can't just stay out late whenever I want to, right? I can't just be like, oh, oh, you didn't know I was going to go debate theology with my friends until 3 a.m.? I mean, you should just allow, allow me to have the freedom. How's that going to go over? Not very well. So the covenant that you enter determines your relationship. And what God has done for you is place you in Christ. If you're a Christian, he's placed you in Christ in the context of this new covenant. So what I'm saying by this is that Christianity is more than just an end of life hope. Get that. Christianity is more than just an end of life hope. What you hope one day will happen after you're gone. It's about today. And proof that it is real and that it is that it does mean forever is that it changes everything now. And I want you to turn here. I know this, this isn't the passage we're going to be expositing this morning, but if you would turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. This is my hope, and I think this is what the author of Hebrews is working to do through these passages. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then... You have been raised with Christ. He's not talking about the resurrection one day that will happen. Praise the Lord. He's talking about right now, today, if you are in Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, if you've been given new spiritual life in Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So in that place that we've talked about, that the author of Hebrews has brought up, the inner place, the inner sanctuary behind the curtain in heaven, in the true heavenly temple where Jesus himself ministers to God on our behalf and brings the blessings of God to us, that's where your life is. Now, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so he says, set your mind there. Basically, put your mind where you are. That's what the author is seeking to do with reminding us of the gravity and the glory of this new covenant that he has put us in. Believe and think correctly or in line with who you've been made to be in Christ. Know who you are. That's what he's getting at. Do you have any idea what God has gloriously done in making you His child? Do you wake up ever 
just stunned at that idea. The I am, the all-powerful one, the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God has made you his child. And there should be a sense of trembling. Know who you are. And there's a problem with getting it the other way around. Well, God made me his child because he saw how worthy and awesome I was. Then you can't glory in it. You can't be thankful. You can't be appreciative of this great condescension and blessing that is salvation and your new identity in Christ if it's God recognized how awesome and glorious you were so you, He made you His Son. The gravity and the grace of this new covenant is that we deserved punishment forever. We had abandoned God. We had made ourselves His enemies. Reprehensible. And God takes us and makes us his sons and daughters. Your identity outside of Christ is an enemy, a child of wrath, following the devil and cursed. Your identity in Christ is a child of God, a co-heir with Christ. Your destiny is to rule and serve with Christ forever. Forever. Ten billion years from now, and it's only just begun. The gravity of that on your soul should just hang on you every day. And that's the challenge of the faith that we have, that we've been given. Christianity isn't just a club of people with a shared hope of what will happen after we die. That doesn't require much life change. It's a massive, transformative, glorious faith. And it demands and requires and deserves sweeping change. A new name and a new identity in Christ. It changes everything. So I've been using this phrase in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, because that's what how the New Testament talks about that all of this is yours if you are in Christ. So, preacher, how do I get in Christ? Well, it's through faith and beginning near the end of January, or the beginning of February, we'll spend around eight weeks just talking about the gospel itself. Take a break from Hebrews and focus on Romans 1, 16 and 17. So if you want to look ahead and marinate in those verses, um, you can do so. How, how, do, how do we enter in this new covenant? What, what is the way in? It's the gospel. It is faith, trust in Christ. But let's ask this question, and, and hopefully you'll see why I've, I've gone on this roundabout way of getting back to what we're talking about. What do you have faith in? Is it, is it just a positive attitude? Oh, I have faith. I'm a a faith-filled person. Is that what we're talking about? What do you have faith in that brings you in Christ? There are two parts of this. One is believing who Jesus is. Who Jesus said He was. That's the first part 
of faith, that you believe and adhere to and affirm the identity of Christ, that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of Man prophesied who will one day judge the nations, that that is who Jesus is. That's the first piece of faith, that you believe that. But also, it's believing and trusting in what he did. This is the other half, believing in who Jesus is, but also believing in what he said he did and accomplished by his death and resurrection. Trusting, here here are the pieces of that, trusting that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. Believing that his sacrifice covers your sins. Believing that his sacrifice is is sufficient for all my sins. Now, if you've been paying attention, you realize that everything I've just described is what it means to believe in him and trust in him as your high priest. Because that's everything that a priest does. He offers sacrifice on behalf of the people. So believing in Jesus is basically the same thing as trusting that he, in fact, is the faithful priest for you. That he has made sacrifice and that it is acceptable before the Father for you. So you have this new identity in Christ. But instead of talking all about you And what it means, the author wants to direct our attention to Christ, who he is, the glory of this great high priest. The key in understanding your identity is not to look deep into who you are and to have a journey of self-discovery. Because maybe something that's not so much of a secret is friends, brothers and sisters, Compared to Christ, none of us are all that interesting. So, fix your eyes on Christ. Dive deep into understanding Him. Prepare yourself for that journey. And there, while gazing on Him in His glory, you will discover your purpose, your meaning, your identity. As you are even changed to conform to His likeness. So with that said, why, why this is important, why the author is doing this, to help his hearers understand what God has done for them, that they would be able to set their minds on the things that are above, that they would begin to understand themselves, understand what this life is even about. Now we come to verse 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. There are at least four comparisons in this verse. The first one I see is that with the old priest, you had unfinished work versus a completed work. Understand this, that to be a priest under the old covenant meant that you were constantly, daily, weekly, yearly, bringing sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice and all sorts of different kinds of sacrifices. There was constantly a need to come over and over and over to the altar to receive forgiveness. You can think of almost anything in your life that needs continual maintenance because almost everything in your life does. I used to live in Texas, and if you went a week or a few days without mowing your lawn, you were uh, 
very afraid when you looked out your backyard and you just pretend it's not there. It's a multiple hour proposition to just mow a small yard with as dense as the grass becomes. If you've ever owned a pool or lived at a house where that has a pool and it's your chore to maintenance the pool, you know that if you let it go a few days without attention, it just falls into disarray. You can think of your health. If you neglect it, entropy takes over. Everything in this universe is prone to decay. It's part of the curse. So with the priests, their daily sacrifice, their weekly sacrifices, their annual sacrifices give this indication. This covenant has to be maintenanced all the time. But not Jesus' finished work on the cross. It is the only thing that is truly and forever finished. When he cries out on the cross, it is finished the gravity of that statement contrasts His work on the cross with everything else in existence. It alone is finished. It alone is done. It alone is incorruptible, not prone to decay. So what His blood and His death accomplished, that one sacrifice that if, if you're going to avoid the trend of all creation into decay and disarray and entropy, you've got to be part of the kingdom. Because the work of Christ is done, it means that living a life for the kingdom is the only life that will not end you up in the same place as Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Everything else breaks. Legacy, wealth, inheritance, house, fortunes, all of it's going to break. And the point Solomon makes over and over is someone else is going to take over it all from you and they're not going to be as wise as you and they're going to ruin it all. But in Christ, the kingdom stands forever. The reason this kingdom has a foundation that is unshakable is because it is built on the finished work of Christ. Another implication is this. The altar is closed. So, we'll get to this a little bit more in the next contrasts. Don't try to earn... God's favor and blessing. You can't earn it. Everything in God's favor and blessing is yours already in Christ. If you are in Christ, this is the big takeaway here, because He has made sacrifice once for all time, if you're in Christ, God cannot love you anymore and God cannot give you anything more than He has already given and promised to do. God loves you as much as is possible right now if you're in Christ. And your behavior doesn't increase His love for you. This frees you to live a life of holiness that doesn't have the pressure of trying to earn God's blessing. The altar is closed. We make sacrifices from our life out of joy of what He's already done, the completed work of Christ. 
All of God's love and approval is found and only found in Christ. And if you're in Christ, it's all yours. You might ask again, but how do I know if I'm truly in Christ? Here's a basic question to know if this is really true of you. Have you abandoned hope in yourself and your schemes and your ability to be good enough and thrown yourself on the mercy, on the mercy and sufficient work of Jesus? That's the test of real faith. Have you abandoned hope in everything else and thrown yourself on the mercy and sufficient sacrifice of Jesus? The next contrast we see here is that they had to offer sacrifices every day and for Christ it was once for all time. So the big idea here is that Jesus doesn't have to do this sufficient work, this all-sufficient work, once for every generation or once for every person, or once for each ethnic group, or once for every time you fall into temptation and sin. So not only is His work completed and done for every generation and every person and every ethnic group, it's also done for all of your sins. All of your sins were future sins when Christ died for you. It would be so silly to try and add to that, wouldn't it? Yet we think, and I could say this because I know myself, that we, we earn or curry favor or merit with God by being good. The legalist in us will not die until God mercifully puts it off at the end of our days. So what does this have to do with me, my new identity, this new purpose in life? Let's take it another way. This is similar to the first one, but let's take it in a little bit different direction. Anything that you've got to make secure and sure every day, there's a little bit of panic. Think if you were entrusted with your own salvation. Think of the panic and fear and you might be thinking of some historical examples, particularly Luther, who cringed and thought all the time that God's anger was rightly standing over and against all his sin. And so he would continually be confessing his sins, seeking some type of absolution. I've got to maintenance this. I've got to keep it in place. All of that fearing and anxiety is eliminated if Christ is the one who does it forever for all time. The good news of the gospel is so different than the exhaustion of other religions. Your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, maybe even people in your own family, because all false religions are the same in this way, that you are responsible to maintenance your relationship with God. It's up to you. You've got to make it right. You've got to curry favor with God. The gospel says Christ has earned and merited the favor that through faith you receive. Understand the anxiety, fear, and just horrid 
nature of existence that your friends and family and neighbors and co-workers are in, false religion or not. Even if they say they have no religion, they still think that it's by their own doing they can be a good person and earn some favor back from the universe. It should move us to pity and tell them the truth and the good news that all of God's love and favor can be found in Christ. The third contrast in this verse is that the old priest offered two sacrifices, two offerings, versus one offering. Because Jesus does not have to make sacrifice for his own sins. He only makes sacrifice for the sins of the people. So there's no hindrance. You can see this in the verse. He has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. In order for the priest to be acceptable as a representative of the people before God, he had to make sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of his household first. But Christ doesn't have to do that. He has no sin on his own account. He is righteous. And he has always been righteous and he will forever be righteous. So what does it have to do with me, preacher? What does this have to do to influence my new identity and who I see myself in Christ as? There are endless ways, but I wanted to focus on this one. James uh, the brother of our Lord says, the prayers of a righteous person have great power as it is working. Jesus doesn't have to make sacrifice for his own sins because he has no sin. And when Jesus prays for you, when he makes intercession for you, God listens to him. He's interceding to the Father on your behalf Every day, he always lives to make intercession for his people. Why are you so anxious, Christian? The one who has no sin to his account, the one who perfectly knows and delights in the father, the one who created the world, the one who is king of all things, the one who knows all of the past and the present and the future is praying for you. And God listens to him. He is always acting on your behalf in relation to God. This is biblical wisdom. This is the wisdom that is from above. This is how Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 31 can laugh at the calamity to come. Because Lady Wisdom knows that she is with God. You, Christian, have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Can make us bold and brave, regardless of the calamity when it comes. The fourth final contrast in this verse that I see is that the first priest under the old covenant offered animals. But Jesus Christ offered himself. Offering animals versus offering himself. This is exactly what the text says at the end of verse 27. When he offered up himself. 
And there was a theological necessity that Christ had to be the one to die. The saints of old understood, if you read Psalm 51 closely, you see that David knew that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins, just as the author of Hebrews is going to say. They knew that there was an inadequacy built into the system to make us look for something better. And so that's all that the priests of old could do. They, they just offer up these symbols, these shadows of the coming Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Only a human can die in the place of a human. And only an infinite God can fully deal with and remove sins against an infinite God. So that's the theological necessity. But I also want you to see the folly and the obscenity of it. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a curse. And there's a man hanging on a Roman cross, bloodied and bruised and scourged and nailed and pierced. And this is the wisdom of God. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Or to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. That happening, God on a cross, is so offensive that idea, because it means that our sin was so bad it required the death of God Himself, and that God would be such a God to do that, to take our sins and lay it on His Son and kill Him in our place, that's obscene to the world. We need to return to the confidence and the power of this folly that we preach. We've got to return to the good news. This is what we'll be talking about with the series on Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why would you be ashamed of the best news in the world? Because it means this, God on a cross. Every Christian is a missionary in this sense, that you are to speak the folly of what we preach to those who need to hear. And that for those who are being saved, it will be sufficient as the power of God to save them. So you can do it yourself and you can also help those who do. You can give money to missionaries you know. You can pray for them. You can give through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which is still going on. People need this message of the gospel. They're not going to be saved by you being nice to them. They're not going to be saved by giving them food. You should be nice to them. You should give them food. But they need the folly of what we preach. God on a cross dying for your sins in order to be saved. That's the power of God for salvation. Verse 28. Or... Also, remember that there's a limitation to the saving power. And we talked about this last week, but it's important to say again. There is a limitation to this utmost saving power. It only applies to you if you draw near to God through Him. This power of God for salvation in His Son offering up Himself for us is only applied to you if you draw near to God through Him. 
Verse 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. There are several comparisons in this verse. I'll just highlight four. The first contrast is that there was just, these priests were just ordinary men Versus a man who is also the son of God. It, the, the oath appoints a son. The son of God and also the son of David. The ruler of all God's people. The son of God himself. The eternal word. I am. The Lord of hosts. Has joyfully obligated himself forever. To serve you and lead you as your great high priest. He hasn't just tossed you a rescue line so that you can be spared from hell. He has, in becoming your high priest, obligated himself forever to serve you. That doesn't stun you. I don't know what can that God would come down, humble himself, and serve his enemies forever, making them his co-heirs, sons of God with him. This is the one who has made this covenant for us, the son of God himself. So what does this have to do with me and my identity, who I want to be and what my life should be about? Do not set your hope in princes, in politicians, in spouses, in children, in career paths, or in yourself. They will all fail you. But the Son, the Son of David, the Son of Man, the Son of God, will not. As the old hymn says, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Second contrast in this verse. The old priests, the priests under the old covenant, were appointed by law or by the command. Versus the son being appointed by the oath. So it's the law appointing men in their weakness versus the oath appointing the son. So what's the big deal here? What's the big deal of, between law and oath? Why should the author draw our attention to that? The idea is this. God is commanding men to do it with the command, with the law, versus the oath which says, I will do it. You do it. You make sure that the succession of priests, sons of Aaron happens versus I will do it. That's the beauty of the new covenant. If you go to Jeremiah, which the author of Hebrews is going to quote in chapter 8, so I'm not just bringing it in without reason. Jeremiah 31, if you want to turn there. This is the covenant you're in. You should know this passage. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Your part to play in the new covenant is to receive what God has done already. You don't have to maintenance it. You don't have to keep it in place. God does. It's the command versus the oath. I will do it, God says. And let me just say, this is probably one of the most important ones you need to really get with how it affects who you see, who you are, and what you understand your relationship with Christ to be. You need to turn to Christ by the Spirit to do the things that you simply cannot do and the things you were never meant to do. You can't be the Holy Spirit for yourself. And you can't be the Holy Spirit for your spouse. And you can't save people. We need Him. The new covenant is I will do it. I will do it. We need to be faithful. There are tons of things we have to be faithful in, but the power is from the Spirit. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. We are desperate for Him. That's the Spirit behind our prayers that He's the one who has to do it. If anything's going to happen at all, all we're doing is cultivating and planting and just waiting for the rain to come, for God to give the growth if He does not move powerfully. So many of you may be so exhausted and anxious and fretful because you're trying to be the Messiah You think you can be godlike here in the time of our sojourn. You haven't received the resurrected body yet. Trust in Christ. Plead with God to do what only He can do. Jesus is the only Messiah. The next contrast in this verse is the old and temporary versus the new and forever. We're no longer under the old covenant. This means that your standing with God is not based on your works. The oath came after the law. It also means that there's no great revelation that we're waiting on. We are in the last hour. We are in the final age. Because there's no greater covenant that could possibly be made. This is the problem with false religions and aberrations of Christianity. They say that Jesus Christ wasn't enough. What Jesus revealed in the time of his 
tabernacling among us wasn't enough. We needed more revelation. We needed a better way. It's Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. We needed more truth to come to us. We don't need anything else. Jesus Christ is the greatest thing that could ever happen in the history of redemption in any possible world. And we're in it. It's final. There's nothing greater that can ever happen in all of human history. All creation and all existence everywhere is part of it. And you are called right into the middle of it. This is the moment. Each day is part of this war. And the enemy wants you to go back to the old way. That's why the author of Hebrews is writing this. The appeal of going back the old way, going back to Egypt, as it were, is always there. That's how the enemy derails you in your life, is to not see the significance of what Jesus has done and to find your identity and meaning in that but to look for something else. Just like John said, are you the one or should we look for another? Friends, Jesus is the one. The last contrast is the weakness of men versus the perfection of Jesus. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You could also say it this way, The Lord Jesus is my high priest. I find in Him all I will ever need. He's perfect. One of the reformers said it this way, God is wholly found in him, Jesus. So that the one who is not contented with Christ alone desires something better and more excellent than God, which doesn't exist. Let your soul be satisfied in him alone, as the song says. My soul is satisfied in him alone. And the stunning plot twist is this, that while remaining perfect, he took on our weakness. It's a both and with Christ. He's not just perfect and pristine in heaven somewhere for us to pray through saints or pray through Mary to get to. He took on our weakness so that as brother, as man to man, he can say, I understand, trust me. So we can draw near with confidence and yet at the same time find the glory and magnitude and grandeur that our hearts truly need. You need the glory of God, whether you know it or not. You need the glory of God. You were created for the glory of God. And you need it and you can't find it in any other place than in Christ himself. So see what God has done for you. Set your mind on things above where Christ is, where your life is. 
Living in the light of the gospel means so much more than simply having a general idea about where you're going after you die. It's everything. It changes our thoughts. It changes our dreams. It changes our goals. It changes our identity. It gives us a new name. So here are a few action points for you. We're starting a new year in a few days. And as I said, it's just another day on the calendar, but it often provides some degree of energy for trying new things or or trying to enter into deeper levels of faithfulness. So here are some that maybe could be for you in light of this, in light of what God has done for you, in light of the call, the command to set your mind on things above where Christ is and to understand yourself and your life in the context of this new great covenant that God has made with you in Christ. The first step is to realize it's never too late or too early to begin this journey with zeal. It's never too late or too early to begin this journey with zeal. You, as a Christian, need, your soul needs. You may not feel it as much as as it may sound like in my voice, but trust me, because of the Word and what it says about you, you need to fall headlong into this calling to know who you are in Christ. Young people, your future is bright and golden. You have so much that can be given to Christ. Instead of being anxious about what you want to do with your life, who you will marry, your hobbies, your popularity, your friends or your freedom, who likes you, who you like, and wanting to get out from under your parents' control, all these things that I concerned myself with, don't waste your time on that. Rather, embrace this. I want to understand and live consistently with my new identity in Christ. Oh, revival would be right around the corner if our young people could get that. Graciously, when I was... uh, around the age of 15, 16, and 17, I encountered a problem in my mind, an issue that I had to resolve. It was from Scripture. It was a theological question. doesn't necessarily matter what it was. The fact is that I had a Bible and I had a concordance. And I spent two and a half years trying to answer that question. And what God did through those two and a half years of my teens, was to focus and bring my attention and the trajectory of my life towards Him by giving me a problem and something that made me uncomfortable. And for the not-so-young among us, you may feel in some sense that you're not so far away from glory. So why devote yourself to such a hard study of an issue or a question? Or why fall headlong with zeal into this? Why go through the trouble of questioning everything and being willing to renovate the very foundations of your faith? Here's the glorious truth. Whatever level of understanding you have come to, however much you know, 
regardless of how comfortable you have come to be in your faith, these are but the fringes. As Job says, behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? A million years from now, with your glorified body and mind, we'll still be able to say, these are but the fringes. That should make you tremble before your God. Ephesians 3. If you want to turn there, please do. This has been very important for me to understand what it is our life is to be spent on. Paul urgently prays this for people he understood to be already Christians and already mature Christians. For this reason, I'm sorry, Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And here are a few other ways. That's the first step is to realize it's not too late or too early to begin this. I'm going to give you uh, four ways that you can make this a priority this year. The first is to master one book of the Bible this new year. And really, you'll never get to a place where you can say that you have full mastery of one of the books of the Bible. But just pick one. Pick a short one. Pick Third John. <laughs> right? Just pick one and master it. I've been studying and reading Scripture quite a bit for the last 20 years. And I don't know that there are more than a handful of books that I can say, I, I really get what this is saying. I can say, this is what's happening in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and just go through the whole thing. Like, there are big chunks, right? And I know what's going on in a lot of different places in the Bible, but a whole book to just master that, to know what's going on. Read it over and over and over and over. I, I did this with Ephesians Back in my seminary days, I read and listened to it through about 30 to 40 times. And only then did I begin to get the sense, I kind of get what Paul is doing. These are but the outskirts of his ways. And as you read it, as you go through it over and over, write down all your questions. Start with the Bible to answer them all. Write them down. Ask someone you respect and want to be like and just rinse and repeat. Another way to really begin in this, to pursue this, fall headlong with zeal in this path, is to memorize one chapter from the Bible each month. That may be something that is daunting and terrifying to you, but there are uh, 28 to 31 days in a month, and that's around the average number of verses, uh, give or take. 
You can do it. You can give 30 days to get a chapter down. And even if it's just one chapter a year, that you would be able at any point to just quote John 1. Or Romans 4. Or John 3. Or Ephesians 1. These are massively important sections of Scripture. Not memory verses, you know, not, not little short snippets of God's Word, but a full chunk of what God is saying. Another way, find the Bible's full answer to a hard question. I phrase that very carefully. Find the Bible's full answer to a hard question. There are a lot of hard questions out there. We talked about some of them this morning in Sunday school. But if you devote yourself to find the Bible's full answer to a hard question, you will do well. And you can get help from other people, from commentaries or from theology books, but if you devote, I'm not going to stop I'm not going to give up until I can say this is the Bible's full answer on this issue. And lastly, this is the final way, and hopefully you'll see why I saved it for last. Pick a person to exhort and encourage this year. Pick a person to exhort and encourage. This is the essence of real ministry and discipleship. God isn't so much interested in us doing great things for Him as much as He is interested in you doing great and sacrificial things for one another. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Simon Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Simon Peter, do you love me? Tend my sheep. This is how we know that we have come to know Him if we love the brothers. One who says that he loves God and hates his brother, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. Pick a person to exhort and encourage this year outside of your normal sphere. You're already supposed to be encouraging and exhorting your children, your spouse, your family. Pick someone outside your current sphere. Figure out what makes them tick, where they need encouragement. If they're breathing, they need encouragement. This feeds right into our emphasis, and I'm going to spill the beans on it already. I've told you it multiple times, but an emphasis on discipleship this coming year. This is discipleship. This is ministry. This is what is pleasing to the Lord, that you as an individual Christian would set your gaze to the good and the benefit and the knowing of Christ in another Christian. And in that activity, you will find him. Christ is found where he is ministering. If you want to be close to Christ, join him in what he is doing. And what he is doing is ministering to, serving, feeding his sheep. Or, on the other hand, pick someone who needs encouragement or truth and gently and persistently go after them and build them up. If you feel like you're not qualified, then go up to someone and say, hey, how about you disciple me? 
right? It can feel awkward to be, hey, I think I should disciple you, right? That's an awkward conversation to have. Trust me. Um, but if we had a culture of saying, hey, you understand this, you're, you're, you're two paces further than me on this issue or this life that pleases the Lord aspect, teach me. Encourage me in this way. So I've given you four different ways where you can prioritize understanding who you are, setting your mind on things above, and and begin to go headlong into this with zeal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 2019. And as we have heard your word and have sought to be obedient to it, I ask that you would transform us. You would give us the will and the wisdom and the courage to be obedient to it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.